0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey there, this is Kelly McDonald, co-host of Kelly and Company on AMI-audio. On our show, we're always discussing the latest events and happenings in the blind and low vision community. Our regional contributors across Canada work tirelessly to keep you updated on events you can't miss and to keep you connected to your community. So don't miss out. Listen to Kelly and Company wherever you listen to good podcasts. I'm joytha Gupta, and this is is the pulse. In Canada, migrant workers perform essential tasks across the economy. From construction to agriculture, caregiving to hospitality, migrant workers work with low pay and under difficult working conditions. Tens of thousands of workers come into Ontario alone every year. On a temporary basis, these workers pick tomatoes in Leamington or grapes in Niagara for the wine industry. As critical as their labour is, little is known about these workers. Most Canadians do not know who they are, where they come from, and how they live whilst in Canada. Even if the work is beneficial to the workers and the Canadian economy, the fact remains that working conditions are problematic. Today, we discuss migrant worker rights. It's time to put your finger on the faults. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. My name is Juita Gupta, and I'm the host of the program. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Before we go any further, just a reminder that if you'd like to keep up with the latest AMI-audio segments dealing with COVID-19, please visit AMI.ca forward slash COVID-19. Today, we're talking about migrant workers and the many and varied ways in which migrant workers or non-status workers contribute to our economy. As a person with a disability, this is a topic that I've long wanted to talk about because I think that while we think quite often and extensively about workers' rights in the context of disability issues, it's helpful to start making connections with other groups of people, other groups of marginalized workers who are similarly fighting for workers' rights. Today, my guest is a community legal worker from the Industrial Accidents Victims Group of Ontario Community Legal Clinic, IAVGO. I am joined today by Jessica Ponting. Hello, Jessica. Welcome to The Pulse. It's so great to have you. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So, Jessica, when we talk about um, IAVGO or the Industrial Accidents Victim Groups of a Group of Ontario Clinic, what exactly does your clinic do?
1: Sure. So, we're a legal aid clinic. Um, it's a community clinic uh, that works a lot with injured workers. Um, And so we prioritise the cases of migrant and precarious workers. That's the majority of our our clients. Um, And we do things like provide law reform, uh, community development, uh, and a whole range of legal services. So summary advice, um, brief services, representation, kind of the the gamut.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, when we talk about migrant workers, who exactly are we talking about? What are some of the roles or the sectors in which migrant workers typically work?
1: Right. So there's migrant workers in all kinds of industries. Um, our clinic particularly focuses on farm workers. Um, mm-hmm. So that's sort of the most in terms of what I, I know in terms of the group. But, uh, you know, workers are in hospitality, and as your introduction said, construction, construction, um, uh like even things like retail and um you know fast food places
0: mm-hmm. uh, yeah Caregivers, uh, the, the, as well, of caregivers of course is a big one and one of the things i know when we talk about migrant workers and the temporary basis in which on which they work in canada is that there's a range of programs that allow for migrant workers to temporarily work in canada so you specifically talked about farm workers tell us a little bit more about the seasonal worker program that allows farm workers to come in from other countries and work in places like ontario and elsewhere across the country
1: sure So the seasonal agricultural workers program has been around for about 60 years. It was 1966 um, that it first started. Uh, And it involves workers coming from the Caribbean uh, and Mexico primarily um, to work for a seasonal um, period of time. So it can be anywhere from six weeks to eight months uh, out of the year. Um, And so those workers are going all across Canada Uh, to work. I think there's about 20,000 workers in Ontario alone.
0: Mm -hmm. And when I think about live-in caregiver programs, just to draw a contrast there, it's often uh, workers from the Philippines, very skilled workers coming to Canada to work in the live-in caregiver program, uh, nurses, teachers. But when you think about the agricultural sector, are we looking at uh, fairly low-skilled workers coming into the, the country? What's the level of skill that's required to work in some of these agricultural positions? Yeah, so,
1: I mean, it's constantly referred to as a low-skilled type program. And, and there's, in fact, besides the seasonal agricultural workers program, there's the temporary foreign workers program, which has an agricultural stream. And so actually mm-hmm. farm workers are coming from both programs, and it's constantly kind of referred to as, as low-skilled. Um, but I think we need to challenge that because, you know, the work that, that people are doing is incredibly um It's incredibly skilled work, Um, and I think that that narrative of unskilled versus skilled is is quite problematic. Um, You know, the skills that people are bringing, uh, you know, you can see it because farm workers, excuse me, farmers uh, recall workers year after year to come work on the program um, because they know just how much experience is required to do this work.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't think I'd last a day on any kind of farm. I can tell you that. Uh, uh, tell, me about, <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about. Tell me a little bit about this the, this uh, this notion that these workers are coming from as far as the Caribbean. Uh, you mentioned Mexico. Why is it that Canadians can't work in these positions? Is it that these jobs aren't made available to Canadians, or do Canadians just seem to not want to work in jobs that might be deemed as low paying or low skilled?
1: Yeah, I, I'm not that, You know why Canadians aren't doing this work? It, it's it's a complicated answer, I think, mm-hmm. um, and it does start with uh, you know how how people are paid. I mean, it's very low pay, minimum wage or piece rate, um, and the you know the working conditions are incredibly tough. So mm-hmm. people are working on farms for you know 11, 12 hour plus. Sometimes mm-hmm. um, it's you know backbreaking work. There's a lot of injuries. Um, you know, occupational health and safety is very limited on the farms, from what we understand. Uh, you know, and it's just it's it's really hard work. And I think, um, you know, when the government was setting up this program in 1966, you know, they first looked to see if Canadians uh, to try to incentivize Canadians to do the work. And the growers really pushed against it because um, they wanted a, a labor force that they could control. Um, mm-hmm. They they used the term reliable, they wanted a reliable workforce. Uh, so they wanted workers who would not leave um, halfway through the harvest season uh, mm-hmm. and kind of leave them in the lurch. And so the government created this program um, that provide, provided basically a controllable, reliable, dependable, <laughs> Um, source of labor, uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence um, that the workers who are doing this work uh, are racialized, right? right. Um, so I'll just maybe step back a bit and kind of put um, sort of the program in context. Mm-hmm. So the SOFT, um, it's a, a government program of um, managed migration. So it's uh, managed through the state. And it's based on um, a memorandum of understanding between Canada and Mexico and Canada and uh, the Commonwealth Caribbean countries. And it requires that um, workers migrate temporarily to work. Um, And so their status in Canada is tied to their their work. And not only is it tied to their work, it's tied to their employer. Um, And so the work permit that, that people come on uh, literally has the employer's name on it and says you're only allowed to work with this farmer, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a that tied work permit. um means that a worker's only job available to them is on that particular farm. In addition to that, the, there's a contract that workers sign that require you to lease after the contract's done. Uh, it's also um, there's repatriation provision so that um, if an employer wants to repatriate you for any sufficient reason, they're allowed to repatriate you. And so mm-hmm. it's a very controlling program. You you have your employer has a tremendous amount of power over you, because they can support you um, at any time. And because they have the ability to recall you the following year to name you, right? So there's no mm-hmm. seniority, right? Um, you you basically get recalled by your employer, and that's your only job security. So that the power imbalance is, is quite quite incredible, um, and you can't change jobs, so mm-hmm. you're kind of in, stuck.
0: Yeah. I'm speaking to Jessica Ponting, who is a community legal worker with Ievgo, which is the Injured injury accident victims group of Ontario, industrial accident victim group of Ontario, community legal clinic. Uh, Jessica, if you, you talked about the very acute power imbalance between workers in, the migra- in who are farm, fi- migrant farm workers as well as um, their employers, what does this mean for a worker who is injured on the job? Do they automatically get deported? What kind of rights do they have? Not a lot. So on paper, the government would say that an injured migrant worker
1: would have the same uh, right to workers' compensation, for example, um, as any other Ontario worker. But if you look at what really happens, you see a lot of workers who are um, pressured not to file workers' compensation claims. You see a lot of employers who, as soon as they find out about an injury, um, book them a plane ticket home. So... It takes about two days. It can be 24 to 48 hours um, for the employer to literally go to their travel agent and book the, the flight home. So, mm-hmm. you know, workers, um, a major problem is that and a major problem is access to health care. So uh, when a worker gets injured, it's very difficult to um, first tell your employer about the injury, but say you do that um, you're reliant on your employer to take you to the doctor or to the emergency room uh, so that's that's one barrier many employers rather than doing that or you know maybe as soon as they've done it put the worker on it on a plane and they're on their way home
0: Yeah, now this might be a silly question to ask, but I'm going to ask you anyway, because while they're in Canada, these temporary foreign workers, the seasonal workers, um, I'm assuming they are paying taxes to the Canadian government. Do they not have access to uh, universal health care as would a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident? Yeah, so um,
1: workers under the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program have OHIP, coverage as soon as they arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, the one And, and a, a lot of workers will get their OHIP cards within a couple of weeks of arriving. Mm-hmm. However, there's a lot of workers as well whose employers hold on to the OHIP card. So in order to access healthcare, you've got to ask your employer for your OHIP card. And that's a huge problem because, you know, if healthcare is mediated through your employer, um, and I don't know, you know, how how much your audience is aware of like workers compensation issues but workers compensation is a very adversarial system where the employer just wants to cut down on claim costs um and so you know really doesn't want you to get healthcare (laughs) doesn't want you to take time off work wants to minimize an injury um and so when you know you're an acutely injured worker and you have your health care being mediated by your employer through things like transportation and access to your card it's a real problem.
0: My name is Juhitha Gupta and my guest today is Jessica Ponting, who is a community legal worker with IAVGO. Jessica, before the break, you touched on the WSIB program and the fact that workers uh, feel quite vulnerable in putting in claims. What about access to something like employment insurance? Is that something that uh, a seasonal worker, a farm worker who is in Canada on a temporary basis would have access to?
1: Right. So, uh, farm workers pay into to EI. Um, they pay in as much as anybody else. Mm-hmm. However, they cannot get it. Um, it's very, very difficult. Uh, so, you know, there's different types of employment insurance benefits. There's regular um, and sickness benefits and bereavement benefits and all of those. Um, it is uh, impossible for workers because of their tied work permit, because they can only work for one employer. Uh, the, the federal government says no you cannot access EI benefits mm-hmm. and it's because um, it's because in order to access regular EI benefits you need to be looking for work and because of this um, really restrictive immigration uh, work permit they're they're not able to, to really look for other work because they've got this tied permit so they're mm-hmm. not able to access EI regular but they can access EI sick um, but it's more in theory than in practice. Um, I think only maybe a handful of workers have been able to access it. And you're only able to access it in the country. So once you leave, you're not able to to access it. When a worker becomes injured um, or gets sick, they're often repatriated. And so, you know, those workers aren't able to access the EI system either.
0: Uh, one of the, the the laws that we talk about often on this program, given that many of us have uh, disabilities, is the Human Rights Code, and particularly when it comes to employment, the duty to accommodate in case of disability. Uh, does the Human Rights Code apply to migrant workers, and would a, a worker with a disability or someone who acquires a disability on the job be protected uh, under the Human Rights Code? Yes. Yeah,
1: so the Human Rights Code does apply to, to migrant workers. Whether workers are actually able to access its benefits is, um, is another question altogether. There have been a few human rights cases um, that have made it to uh, to an actual hearing. Um, and, you know, there's the human rights process is the settlement process often at the beginning. So there's, there's that. Um, it's definitely something that's really important. Uh, however, because it's a complaint-based system, is very difficult for workers to actually access it unless they have um, really like connection with legal support, which is
0: difficult. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's like any other situation where you've got rights on paper, but it's very difficult to enforce those rights in practice. I read an article quite recently which talked about COVID-19 and how the pandemic has really exposed the plight of migrant farm workers Describe to us, Jessica, how the conditions on many of these farms and the conditions of employment might have left migrant farm workers particularly susceptible to COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, it's a really sad situation. I mean, the um, the conditions on the farms, the lack of care by all levels of government um, to actually ensuring that that workers are protected. Um, you know, it's costing lives, right? Already three workers mm-hmm. have died um from, from it. Uh there's now over a thousand workers who have tested positive for COVID. Um, you know, the bunkhouse conditions, so workers on the stop live in bunk houses. Um often these bunk houses have 20, 30, 40, 50 plus people um and there's absolutely no way to socially isolate in any meaningful way in the workplace um there's no way to meaningfully socially isolate um, it's just I, I feel like the government has basically said well you know these workers are disposable and we don't particularly care if if they're going to get sick i mean the provincial government recently uh this was a couple of weeks ago said that well you know it's okay if if farm workers um, are going back to work who've tested positive so long as they're put in a, um, in a space where they can be socially isolated. And mm. it's, you know, it's shocking to me. I mean, I've, I've seen a lot, but it, especially with this particular community because they're so, um, you know, exploited and, and truly um, treated as if they're disposable. Um, but that to me was just so callous. That, mm-hmm. that the government would say it's okay to send workers, to send farm workers back to work, you know, if they've tested positive.
0: Um, shocking,
1: yeah. I mean, it, it truly is shocking, and it, it's totally predictable because, you know, workers do live in these funk houses uh, and work in close quarters and have been historically, um, you know, <laughs> the, the racism that these workers have historically and contemporarily experienced, it's well documented, um, and you know the disposability is well documented, uh, and it persists. And even now, I mean, there's one um, there's one public health unit in Brantford who uh, who said, okay, well, on the two week period of quarantine when workers first come from you know Jamaica or Mexico, for the initial two weeks where worker where people are required to be in quarantine, the public health unit uh, told employers that um, you're only allowed to quarantine uh, three people at a time. This is just this is one particular health unit, uh, and the farmers um, the farmers fought back and, and challenged it, and said, "Nope, you know it's unreasonable. You can't do that. Um, you know workers want to be together, and like all this really paternalistic language around. You know they know what's best for their farmers, farm workers. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of their arguments, if you look at, uh, if you look at the case, a lot of their arguments were about, you know, well, don't worry, you know, we're keeping them away from the community. And, you know, public health, I think rightly said, well, you know, these people are a part of our community, you know, mm-hmm. it's not just, you know, going to town. It's, these are, these are people who we need to protect as well. And I think that gets to, um, just how uh, exploitative and how disposable um, even farmers treat workers. They'll be the first ones to say that, you know, without farm workers, we wouldn't have um, food security in Canada. Um, We wouldn't have, um, you know, the ability to, you know, have this billion dollar um, agro business uh, industry. But, I mean, they're also the first ones when somebody gets injured to send send them home and they'll sit there and say you know these are workers who are part of our family right they've been coming up for 20 years you know they're they're part of our family and it's very paternalistic but Mm -hmm. again something happens where a worker can't be you know like act so compliant or if they get injured um you know you're
0: it's goodbye you know Right. I'm speaking to Jessica Ponting, who's a community legal worker at IAVGO, which is a community legal clinic that offers services to injured workers. In this case, we're talking about injured farm workers. Jessica, I wonder if you've ever thought about there being a parallel between what migrant workers, uh, specifically migrant farm workers, go through in terms of their job and and employment situation and some of the realities of workers with disabilities. I mean, uh, you use words like paternalistic, a lack of job security, and just, you know, thinking about it in a very initial way, I certainly think that there might be uh, some room for solidarity and Cross-issue collaboration. What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's so many injured workers. First of all, people with disabilities um, who come who uh, who get injured while in Canada, I think, and you know, are experiencing so many barriers in terms of access to healthcare, access to reemployment, you know, restoring their their wages, um, even. You know, deeply personal things, right? Like that experience that people have um, is is deeply personal. And the um, in in the case of workers' compensation, for example, when workers are having to sort of go up and fight this massive bureaucratic institution to get, you know, even basic um, basic benefits, <laughs> uh, it's an incredibly isolating experience right um mm-hmm. you know people people very much feel the weight of the government and have no um no control over it and no ability to to meaningfully assert their rights to, to the point where they're they're actually getting what uh they need and what they deserve mm-hmm. um so i mean there's, there's that and i think there's uh, so the the connection with the disability community is already huge i mean because health and safety and injuries in the program is are so prevalent, like mm-hmm. health and safety problems and and injuries on the program are so prevalent. Um, but it's also a very um, racialized workforce, and so there's uh, I think heightened um, an intersectionality of oppressions going on. They're working mm-hmm. class, um, racialized, mostly men. Um, there's all kinds of uh, mental health issues um, that that there's not adequate support for. Um, mm-hmm. I think people, particularly governments, see it as sort of an individual problem, and it's not. It's, it's a collective problem that mm-hmm. needs different movements to come together and really build together and stand up for each other around. Mm-hmm.
0: Jessica in the minute or so that we have left I want to ask you especially with all of this talk right now during the pandemic about essential workers whether you would consider migrant farm workers essential workers and if you did what recommendations would you make to improve their situation whether it's their living situation or their work conditions on their farms So I think society has already said that they're essential workers
1: um I have concerns that that uh, that respect isn't flowing. Um, same as the there's the government had additional wages for essential workers that they uh, that farm workers were excluded from. I think that's incredibly problematic. Um, I think I think there needs to be um, you know more listening to workers um finding out what they mean. I think there needs to be um, more uh, frankly I think there needs to, to, the whole structure of the program is so problematic because it's you know you're tied to an employer you can't work anywhere else um, you can be deported at any time you have to live in, in your employer's bunkhouse um, can't bring family <laughs> all of these things uh, mm-hmm. I think that the program itself to, needs to, to be restructured um, workers need to have status when they arrive you know, if you don't have immigration status, you are not properly protected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you're not going to be able to to refuse unsafe working conditions. You're not going to be able to to say, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe I shouldn't work. You know, this person next to me has has tested positively for COVID. Maybe I shouldn't work two feet away from from them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're not going to be able to meaningfully assert your rights if you don't have protective immigration status. And I do think that means the second you get to the country, you have full status. You are treated as a full member of society.
0: Yeah, Jessica Ponting, thank you very much. We are clearly out of time, but I've really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks so much for being on the program. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Jessica Ponting, Community Legal Clinic worker with IAVGO, which is the Industrial Accidents Victim Group of Ontario Community Legal Clinic. Today we spoke about migrant farm workers and some of the conditions that de- that they deal with when they arrive to work in Ontario on a temporary basis. If you missed any of my conversation with Jessica Ponting, you can catch it on your favorite podcast platforms. Before we go, I'd like to say that I think there are some natural synergies between disability rights work and justice for migrant workers. In both instances, we have a group of skilled workers who often do not receive the full benefits of employment. There are so many parallels that can be made going beyond the fact that there is a very high incidence of disability and injury amongst migrant farm workers. I hope that we can think about some of the ways in which we can form cross-sector collaborations. But most of all, the next time you sit down to a bowl of fresh Ontario peaches or locally grown strawberries, I hope you'll give some thought to where that food came from and who is responsible for putting it on the table. I hope you'll also head on over to AMI.ca forward slash on the Pulse, where I have a few additional thoughts. I'd like to thank Jessica Ponting for being my guest on the program today. The technical producer for The Pulse is Ms. Abdul-Majeed. Andy Frank is our manager at AMI-audio. And, Paula Dineen is our technical supervisor. Thanks a lot for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.
1: I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast Tripping On Air. Every month my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.